Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 126, The Museum Heist. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about a heist at one of Boston's many art museums. It's probably a familiar tale. Late at night, after the museum is closed, a man talks the guard into unlocking the door. He pulls out a gun, and within seconds the guard is tied up and blindfolded, while a gang roams through the museum picking out rare masterpieces. By the time the guard gets himself free and calls the police, the gang has made off with millions of dollars in stolen artwork, in a case considered the largest art heist in U.S. history. The tale may sound familiar, But we're not talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum case. We're talking about a different art heist, one that was carried out 17 years earlier across the river in Cambridge. But before we talk about the 1973 Harvard Fog Museum heist, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a puzzle of all things. That's right, a jigsaw puzzle. Technically, it's called the City of Boston History Over Time 4D Cityscape Time Puzzle. And if you're wondering, the fourth dimension is indeed time. There are three elements to the puzzle. The first layer is a traditional jigsaw puzzle. You know the deal. A picture pasted on a cardboard backing, cut out into interlocking shapes. A puzzle. The picture in this case is an 1842 map of Boston, which focuses mostly on the Shawmut Peninsula and Boston Neck, with narrow strips of Charlestown and Cambridge across the Charles River. I don't do a whole lot of puzzles, but I'd say this one is reasonably challenging. There are big swaths of water in the Charles and the Harbor that are hard to distinguish, and the street grid is hard to figure out until you really focus in on the streets that are labeled. Once you get 1842 put together, you're not done. There's a whole second layer of puzzle waiting for you. The next layer isn't like any puzzle I've ever done before. It's a modern map of Boston printed on a thick foam rubber backing. As you put it together, it sits over the 1842 map, but there are cutouts for any areas that are water on both maps. This one does seem hard at first because there are so many tiny unlabeled streets. But once you figure out that you have both exterior border pieces to pull out and the interior borders along the waterways, things start to get a bit easier. When it's all together... It slides on and off the 1842 map for easy comparison. If you thought you were done, you thought wrong. The last piece of the puzzle is a set of plastic models of notable modern and historic buildings in Boston. There are pre-cut holes in the modern map for the buildings to sit in, finally giving you that fourth dimension. The folks over at the Boston Book Blog tipped us off to this cool puzzle, and we bought ours from I Am Books in the North End. We'll have pictures of each stage of the puzzle, as well as a link to buy it, in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a book talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society on April 17th. Yale professor Mark Peterson will be discussing his new book, The City-State of Boston, The Rise and Fall of an Atlantic Power, 1630 to 1865. Peterson specializes in the history of early North America and the Atlantic world. The book is an exploration of Boston's unique identity as an autonomous town that functioned almost as a nation of its own long before the creation of the United States of America, and also how that identity was lost. Here's how the MHS website describes the event. In the vaunted annals of America's founding, 
Boston has long been held up as an exemplary city upon a hill and the cradle of liberty for an independent United States. Resting this iconic urban center from these misleading, tired cliches, Mark Peterson highlights Boston's overlooked past as an autonomous city-state, and in doing so, offers a path-breaking and brilliant new history of early America. The event begins at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, April 17th, with a reception at 5.30. Pre-registration is required, and there's a $10 fee, unless you're an MHS member or an EBT cardholder. We'll have a link to more information in this week's show notes. Before we move on, we want to remind you about our Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 per month, you can help us offset the costs of making this podcast. We have levels of support named after some of our favorite figures in Boston history, Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams. Everyone who contributes gets access to some bonus material, like our episode scripts and bloopers. Plus, at each level, there are special thank you gifts for supporting us. From a Hub History sticker, to a monthly group video chat, to a walking tour of the Back Bay. If you want to help us create this show, you can go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. Thank you to all of our supporters. And now it's time for this week's main topic. On December 1st, 1973, a nondescript middle-aged white man visited the Fog Art Museum on Quincy Street on the Harvard campus. Guards recognized him as a frequent visitor in recent weeks, but otherwise paid him no mind. The visitor was carrying a brown paper shopping bag, which the guards also paid no mind, until it was turned into the lost and found that afternoon. Inside the bag was a white cardboard box with markings from the Harvard Coop. The guard on duty put it away behind the security desk at the museum's service entrance. That afternoon, a man called the museum about five minutes before closing time and identified himself as Mr. Ryan. He described the parcel that had been turned into the guards and said that he must have set it down beside one of the display cases and then walked off and left it. Now, Mr. Ryan was in a panic because the box contained a birthday present for his daughter, so he asked if he could stop by after hours to pick it up. The guard on duty indicated that he would be there until 6 p.m., and Mr. Ryan was welcome to stop by before then. Six o'clock came and went with no Mr. Ryan, so the day guard, Charles Long, told the evening guard, Jacob Bloomling, about Mr. Ryan. And then at midnight, Bloomling told Charles Pearson, the overnight guard, to expect a possible visit from Mr. Ryan. Less than an hour into Pearson's shift, somebody knocked on the service entrance, smiled, and waved. Pearson had him show an ID through the glass, then unlock the door and let Mr. Ryan in. That, according to the statement Pearson gave in an incident report, was a mistake. At approximately 12.45 a.m., a white male, about 5 foot 8 inches, 180 to 190 pounds, no other description, came to the north entrance of the Fog Museum and stated that he was Mr. Ryan, and he was here to pick up his package. I unlocked the door and let him in. This Mr. Ryan walked over to the package, picked it up, and turned to walk out when he produced a chrome-plated small revolver and said, This is a hold-up. Mr. Ryan then gave me a ski cap to put over my head and eyes, and then tied me up with some blue plastic tape and made me lay down on the floor. Mr. Ryan said to be quiet, that he had three or four more guys coming in. I was picked up off the floor by Ryan and asked where the elevator was. I was taken to the third floor. On the third floor, the robbers took Pearson's large key ring and put him into a back room. Moving confidently, 
the gang went straight to the coin room, which contained an enormous collection of Roman and Greek coins of gold, silver, bronze, and copper. Using Pearson's keys, they let themselves into the room and began smashing into display cases and grabbing rare coins. They also picked up an iron safe that was about three feet square and removed it entirely. When the dust settled, they had probably taken about 3,000 of the most valuable coins from the coin room, bypassing more common ones. In the safe were 2,650 more coins, none of which belonged to Harvard or the museum. They were on loan from the Doing Greek Numismatic Foundation as a teaching aid. The thieves' ability to select only the most valuable pieces, along with the fact that they knew about the coin room in the first place, raised suspicions. Museum director Daniel Robbins told the Boston Globe, None of the coins taken were on public display. Of the total, 2,650 Greek coins, mostly silver, were in a safe which was carried away. The rest were in metal trays and cabinets. The coin room is used solely for scholarly pursuits, Robbins said, and no one is allowed in except by appointment and after proper identification. The room itself is in an out-of-the-way spot on the third floor and would be very difficult to find for anyone not familiar with the area. Robbins said he couldn't understand why such a robbery would be carried out, though he called it a sophisticated and very professional job. The value of the loot was originally estimated at somewhere between $1 and $5 million, and that estimate fluctuated a lot between different news reports, as particular coins were identified as missing or not. The initial report in the Globe said, The holdup is believed to be the largest in history involving rare coins. The loss surpasses the record $1.5 million in coins taken on October 5, 1967, from the Willis H. DuPont home in Coconut Grove, Florida, near Miami. There seemed to be three possible ways to fence such incredibly specialized stolen merchandise. The coins could be sold to disreputable private collectors, though, in the days before the dark web, that process would be incredibly slow and risk getting caught. The coins could be melted down for the precious metals that they were made up of, or and law enforcement officials seized on this possibility from the beginning, the thieves could ransom the coins back to Harvard. Asked if Harvard would be willing to pay such a ransom, museum director Robbins said simply, I think not. The bound and blindfolded guard was able to get himself free within about 10 minutes. The Harvard campus police and Cambridge City police responded to his call immediately. One of the first Harvard cops on the scene would file a report saying, as I approached Quincy and Broadway, I saw two motor vehicles, a black T-bird parked on the wrong side of the street facing east with one person inside. There was a late model Buick, gold color, parked on the right side of the street with four men inside. The Buick got directly behind the other car, and they drove off headed east down Broadway. The Buick trunk was hanging low. I was unable to read the plates because of the distance. With little to go on, it seemed like the investigating officers were grasping at straws. Everyone was on edge, and false alarms were rampant. The morning after the heist, a 40-year-old flight instructor and his 20-year-old student took off from Hanscom Field in a single-engine Cessna. The lesson for the day was landings, and they chose a mothballed airstrip at Fort Devens to practice on. After six successful landings, the instructor got out of the plane, an observer wonders if he needed a bathroom break, and had the student try landing alone. The Boston Globe picks up the story from there. 
Meanwhile, an off-duty firefighter at Fort Devens observed the last landing and takeoff and reported to the control tower that two men had run out of the woods and boarded the plane. The tower is not manned on the weekends, but the call was picked up by neighboring police departments, which began an immediate search for what they thought might be a stolen plane. As the investigative progressed, someone suggested that the mysterious rendezvous might be connected to the theft of several million dollars worth of coins from the Harvard University's Fog Museum over the weekend. A caller to the Fort Devens switchboard suggested that the plane, a Cessna 150, could be used to fly to Canada. By the time the two men arrived back at Hanscom Field, the state police were on the phone with the control tower, and only some fast talking prevented a trooper from being dispatched to have a word with them. That's scary stuff for what was probably the result of a middle-aged guy having one too many cups of coffee that morning. The Globe continues, There was absolutely nothing wrong with their landing there. We didn't think much about it until we started getting calls from the police, said Major A.T. Brainerd at Fort Devens. I'd say it was a case of an overactive imagination. The wild speculation and nervousness went to show how little the police had to go on. The two cars seen by a responding HUPD officer and a vague description of the forgettable Mr. Ryan were at first the only clues. A graduate student named Patricia Earhart was responsible for the day-to-day operation of the coin room, and police questioned her about any recent visitors. An article from the Harvard Magazine published in the year 2000 recounts the information she was able to provide. Had any suspicious visitors come to the coin room in the days before the theft? The Cambridge police wanted to know. Only two people had visited during the preceding week, two men together two days before the theft, asking for general information about ancient coin types and about the pine tree shilling minted in Boston from about 1667 to 1682. They had inquired at the front door and been referred to Earhart by the guard. One had seemed to Earhart a likely amateur coin enthusiast, and the other had looked too stupid to be interested in coins. Neither one alarmed her. She went to police headquarters to help assemble noses, eyes, and ears into two composite drawings. One showed a mustachioed man of about 45 wearing eyeglasses, the other a man of perhaps 25. Earhart recalls with a blob-like face. Earhart worked with a police composite artist, and pretty soon they had sketches of the two visitors and the gunman, Mr. Ryan. These sketches were given to the FBI, who assigned half the manpower of the Boston field office to the case, and they were distributed to area police departments. The Lynn police immediately responded that they recognized one of the perps. Within a week of the theft, the Harvard Crimson reported, Cambridge police arrested Leonard J. Piazza Thursday night outside a store in Lynn. A police source said the arrest was made after Cambridge police showed a composite drawing of the man to the Lynn police. The Lynn police knew of the suspect and where he hung out, the source said. Judge Harry M. Lack continued the case and set bail at $10,000. Piazza posted the bail and was released. Piazza apparently just had the bad luck to look like the composite sketch. Eleven months after his arrest, all charges against him related to the robbery at the Fog Museum were dropped. Unfortunately for Piazza, he was convicted of an unrelated arson charge and sent to prison. After the false alarm with the plane and the arrest of Lenny Piazza, the case seemed to go cold for the better part of a year. According to the Reed article in Harvard Magazine, though, law enforcement expectations continued running high. 
Starting about two or three weeks, maybe even 10 days after the robbery, the FBI thought that they knew who had committed the robbery. Daniel Steiner, then general counsel to the university, would later testify. The FBI was almost continuously optimistic, he said, both in terms of catching the criminals and recovering the coins. Throughout this period, generally on holiday weekends is my recollection, we'd get an urgent call from the Cambridge police or the FBI or someone saying that they were on the verge of recovery and there was some reward money involved and we should meet very quickly, Steiner testified. Today, he recalls, constant back and forth with various law enforcement agencies, many meetings, and many false alarms. Then on October 30th, 1974, nearly a year after the heist, there was a sudden breakthrough. Acting on a tip, the FBI began quietly searching a wooded area near Lincoln, Rhode Island. They apparently knew exactly where to go, and before long they started digging. Agents dug up an old green toolbox in a moldy bowling bag. Inside, they found 3,056 stolen coins, a buried treasure making up about half the total haul from the Fog Museum. The coins were taken to the Boston field office, but no announcement was made for a few more days. On November 5th, the evening papers carried the news that the loot had been found, and the FBI had arrested five suspects in the Fog robbery. Anthony Vaglica, 50 of Waltham, Louis Mathis, 43 of Cambridge, Maria Megna, 21 of Medford, and a married couple from Abington, 34-year-old David Doty and his 28-year-old wife Gladys. Vaglica was arrested at the prison in Cranston, Rhode Island, where he was already serving a sentence for armed robbery. The others were all picked up at their homes. In the case the FBI would develop, Vaglica was painted as the mastermind of the operation. He'd been a security guard at Harvard's Widener Library a few years before as part of a prison work release program. This job gave him access to plenty of inside information about the libraries and museums on the Harvard campus, including where their treasures were. He considered himself an amateur numismatist, or coin collector, and he stole several books on the topic while working for Harvard. As the only member of the gang with any sense of how valuable the loot was, he'd been put in charge of splitting their take into five parts. Vaglica gave his share to another man named Martin Regan, and Regan had buried their two shares in Rhode Island. That might have been a bad decision by Vaglica. In one of the articles about the initial arrests, the Harvard Crimson noted, In October, police in Attleboro, Massachusetts, obtained a confession from Martin G. Reagan of North Attleboro and East Providence, who police said had been beaten by unknown assailants who apparently wanted to learn about the location of the stolen coins. Police said Reagan then led them to about 40% of the coins and implicated six others in the robbery. The other five were charged with conspiracy to transport stolen goods in interstate commerce and transporting stolen property in interstate commerce, which were charges the FBI had jurisdiction over. Vaglica wasn't the only one with a criminal record. David Doty was a railroad worker who had done time for larceny. Mathis was serving a two-year suspended sentence for breaking and entering, and he had also been indicted in a scheme to defraud the VA. Interestingly, a federal judge ordered the release of two suspects just a few days earlier. The Harvard Crimson reported, U.S. Magistrate Willie J. Davis said that there was not enough evidence that the two men, Louis Mathis of Cambridge and Darrell R. Dixon of Jamaica Plain, had participated in a conspiracy to transport stolen goods across state lines. There was ample evidence of their participation in the robbery, 
But the story, as told to me, in no way indicated that they had conspired to transport stolen goods across state lines, Davis said yesterday. The two men cannot be held in federal custody for armed robbery, which is a state crime. As yet, the state has not charged anyone in connection with the fog robbery. I'm sure the government has more evidence than was presented on Friday. If not, they were just wasting their time, Davis said. Just days after the arrests in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, the news came in that yet more suspects in the fog case had been arrested across the border in Montreal. Three suspects were picked up by the Mounties and held for the FBI. 40-year-old Alan Kerchick of Brockton appeared to be the local connection, while the two others were from Chicago. The Canadians had gotten a tip about an ongoing smuggling ring, where American criminals would bring stolen art into Canada to sell. Hearing that there was a transfer coming up that was supposedly worth $150,000, they put some of the suspects under surveillance. When they were pretty sure the deal was done, they arrested the three men. Upon searching Kirchik, they found the key to a safe deposit box. When they opened it, they found 854 fog coins inside. A team of experts from Harvard flew up and spent weeks identifying the coins and then testifying to prove they were part of the fog collection. Finally, the coins were headed home while the suspects were headed for extradition. Experts from Harvard would also have to painstakingly catalog and identify the coins recovered in Rhode Island to prove they were the missing Fog Museum property. In mid-December, the Boston Globe reported, Barbara Burrell and Jill Brennan of the Fog Museum's Ancient Art Department are currently spending four days a week at Boston FBI headquarters, identifying 1,500 Greek and Roman coins found loose in a moldy bowling bag in the Rhode Island woods by FBI agents in early November. Besides the loose coins, the bag contained another 1,600 talents, denarii, and assorted goodies still in Fog Museum envelopes, marked for identification. These were bundled in packages of 20 or so, probably for division among the thieves. A few days later, 843 more coins were located in a Montreal bank safe deposit vault. Agent Carol Farmer of the Boston FBI squad assigned to the case says that extradition proceedings for both the coins and a suspect who is currently held by the Canadians in lieu of $50,000 bond should begin after federal charges are lodged. But what was behind the sudden breakthrough in the case? Why had Regan turned himself in, and how did the feds know to dig up that hidden treasure in Rhode Island? That's where things start to get fishy. In early 1974, a few months after the robbery, a Harvard administrator was approached by a friend who said that a friend of a friend of his was a private investigator who wanted to meet about helping to recover the stolen coins. The administrator, Harvard General Counsel Daniel Steiner, and the friend who made the introduction met with the private detective Irving Richards at a hotel bar in Boston. Richards was visiting from California, and he appeared to have talked the FBI into sharing details of the case, including suspects they were developing. Richards said that he would be able to get the missing coins back for a small fee. A mere half million dollars. The university didn't have a $500,000 budget for shady detectives, so the meeting wrapped up quickly. Over the next few months, Harvard was contacted a few times by a California attorney who represented Richards, and each time, the proposed fee came down a bit. By July 4, 1974, the half million had come down to a quarter. In a call in August, the fee was down to $50,000, and Steiner said yes on behalf of the school. He wired $3,000 to California to cover airfare, hotels, and incidental expenses as Richards came to Boston and got started. 
The first thing Richards did was drive to Cranston to visit Vaglica in prison. The FBI had already questioned him, offering leniency in the armed robbery case in return for information about where the stolen coins were hidden. As a private investigator, Richards obviously didn't have the clout to offer reduced sentencing, and Vaglica refused to say anything about where the coins were or what part he might have played in the scheme. Somehow, though, Richards was able to talk him into giving up the name Martin Reagan, saying that the 31-year-old Attleboro man would know the location of some of the coins. Working with another man named Richard Rip Palmer, Richards went to visit Reagan at home on October 9th. That's when everything went sideways. The two detectives forced their way into Reagan's house at gunpoint, then handcuffed him to a chair. Reagan was maced, pistol-whipped, and beaten so badly that he was left permanently disabled. Amazingly, Reagan kept his mouth shut throughout the ordeal, and Richards gave up and went back to California shortly afterward. The Reed article explains how this incident nonetheless led to a major breakthrough in the case. When Reagan regained consciousness, he went to the hospital to get his head stitched up, said May in a later conversation with one of Harvard's lawyers, and gave a story that he had been hurt by burglars. Thomas R. Grossi, an Attleboro police detective, began to work on Reagan about those burglars and the beating. I told him that things like that don't just happen, Grossi explained to a reporter. Reagan was fearful for his life, according to May. He started to put hypothetical questions to Grossi as to what would happen to a man who gave helpful information about a crime. Reagan had no involvement with crime before the coin robbery, but then he lost his job, a relative introduced him to Vaglica, and he promptly became involved in the planning and execution of the robbery, together with his girlfriend. After the robbery, Reagan got mixed up in other crimes. Grossi put Reagan in touch with Detective Joseph Connors of the Cumberland, Rhode Island Police. Connors and Reagan had been altar boys together. After numerous discussions with law enforcement people and his attorney, Reagan decided to cooperate with the police, was granted immunity, and was taken into the Federal Witness Protection Program. Reagan, it turned out, had been the mysterious Mr. Ryan, who left the package behind in the Fog Museum and then held Charles Pearson at gunpoint when he went back to get it. He had also been present for much of the planning of the heist, and proved to be a star witness. The first conviction came in September of 1975, in Montreal. A jury found Alan Kirchick guilty of illegally possessing stolen goods. The U.S. trials, with testimony from Reagan, began in October 1976. On November 23rd, the first convictions came back as reported by the Harvard Crimson. Three men were found guilty last night of stealing $5 million worth of rare coins from Harvard's Fogg Art Museum in what is believed to be the largest art theft in U.S. history. A Middlesex Superior Court convicted Anthony B. Vaglica of Waltham, Carl Dixon of Jamaica Plain, and Louis R. Mathis from Cambridge of stealing over 5,000 ancient Greek and Roman coins on December 2, 1973. A fourth person, Maria Magna of Cambridge, was convicted as an accessory to the crime. A subsequent article in The Globe reported on the next day's sentencing. Long prison terms were imposed yesterday in Middlesex Superior Court on three men for stealing some $5 million worth of 2,000-year-old Greek and Roman coins from Harvard's Fogg Museum on December 2, 1973. 
a woman defendant was placed on probation for being an accessory after the fact of armed robbery. The trial lasted 30 days. Judge Herbert F. Travers Jr. sentenced Anthony Vaglica of Waltham to 15 to 30 years at Walpole State Prison, effective after he completes a 17-year sentence in Rhode Island State Prison. He has 10 years of mandatory commitment remaining on this sentence. Louis R. Mathis, father of six of Cambridge, and Carl Dixon, father of three of Jamaica Plain, were both committed to Walpole for terms of 20 to 30 years. They must serve two-thirds of the minimum sentence before becoming eligible for parole. Also, Maria T. Magna of Medford, who is described by the court as having acted as a stupid young girl for allowing the defendants to come to her home after the robbery, was placed on probation for five years. The reporter notes that defense attorneys had rejected a plea deal that would have offered sentences of three to five years, contingent on the recovery of all the stolen coins. As the state trials of the coin thieves were getting underway, another set of arrests was announced. Irving Richards and Rip Palmer were arrested and charged with assaulting Martin Reagan. They faced charges of entering a dwelling with intent to commit larceny, assault, and battery with a handgun, and assault and battery with a chemical agent. In the end, Richards went free, while Palmer was sentenced to two consecutive eight-year terms at the New Bedford House of Corrections. In 1977, Martin Reagan filed a $6.1 million lawsuit in Middlesex Superior Court. He sought a million dollars from Harvard for negligence, as well as $1.7 million each from Richards, Palmer, and the university for the injuries, humiliation, pain, and suffering he sustained as a result of his being beaten by agents, servants, or employees of Harvard. Reagan's attorney eventually signaled that he'd be willing to settle for as little as $100,000, but the university's lawyers replied that they were confident that they'd win at trial. Reagan let the matter drop. On May 5, 1979, investigators working with the Norfolk and Middlesex DA's offices converged on a wooded area on the South Shore. They began digging, and within a few minutes, they hit pay dirt. The Crimson reported, William G. Delahunt, Norfolk County District Attorney, said yesterday investigators found the coins in a duffel bag and a fishing tackle box buried under pipes and debris in a South Shore community. He declined to give the exact location. He said an informer, whom he declined to identify, told him in December of 1978 that some of the coins were located in his jurisdiction. Inside, they found 1,800 stolen coins and one fish hook. The Globe reported, Della Hunt declined to confirm a story in yesterday's Herald American that said two Norfolk prison inmates had been negotiating with the state police detectives for reduced sentences in return for information about the whereabouts of the coins. Della Hunt said no arrests were made in connection with yesterday's recovery. He said all suspects in the case had either been sentenced or given immunity in return for helping investigators. This non-denial made it pretty clear that some of the men previously sentenced in the case were working with police to locate the missing coins in exchange for reduced sentences. The Globe also noted the reaction among Harvard faculty. Dr. David Mitten, professor of classical art and archaeology at Harvard and the curator of ancient art at the Fogg Museum, was near tears of joy when he saw the hoard spread on a table in the courtroom at the Quincy District Court. He reached into the pile of silver, bronze, and gold coins and extracted one that he had hoped would be among those recovered. Holding a silver 10 drachma piece from about 476 BC, he said, I can't believe it. This is the day we've been waiting for. 
Just a week later, police announced that another treasure trove had been unearthed. This one had been buried in a basement somewhere in Middlesex County, though investigators declined to be more specific. Middlesex County DA John Droney was more willing than his Norfolk County counterpart had been to acknowledge that he was working on tips from current prisoners. The Crimson reported, Troney said that about a month ago he met with Delahunt and Barry Haight, attorney for Carl R. Dixon, one of the three men sentenced for the coin robbery, to try to determine the hiding place of the missing coins. At that time, Haight was waiting for more favorable terms for his client before revealing the location of the coins, Droney said. Last week, however, he gave us the information and we retrieved the coins Saturday. Droney said that receiving the coins did not involve granting any concessions to the men found guilty of the theft. Their cases are coming before the appellate court for review in June, and the return of the coins may work in their favor, Droney added. Both the media and the authorities considered the case of the fog heist closed. The Globe reported that the hunt for the priceless treasure is over, and the Crimson said that the find completed their recovery of the fog treasure. Norfolk County D.A. Delahunt also said, We're satisfied now that all the coins that are recoverable have been recovered. This is the final chapter, and we're pleased that the coins will once again be available for study and scholarship. Christopher Reed, in his article in Harvard Magazine, wasn't so sure. He wrote, Further recoveries are still possible. Among the vanished pieces was a series of seven little Macedonian silver coins from Eon, each with a duck on it. Six were recovered by police in the 70s. In 1994, says Fog Museum curator David Mitten, a cleaning woman, Anita Reed, found the seventh under the edge of the rubber-based carpet of the coin room. We told her how wonderful she was. Now, in my opinion, they should have gone back to all of the previous cleaners over the prior 21 years who did not clean under the rug. So keep your eyes open for strange coins when you're wandering undisclosed locations in Middlesex or Norfolk counties, Lincoln, Rhode Island, Montreal, or even the halls of the Harvard Fog Museum itself. You never know when a priceless ancient coin is waiting to be discovered. To learn more about the Fog Museum heist and the search for its lost treasures, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 126. We'll have a link to Christopher Reed's well-researched 2000 article in Harvard Magazine called Picking Harvard's Pocket that we used to fill in a lot of the gaps in this story. We'll link to all the articles in the Boston Globe, New York Times, and the Harvard Crimson that we read in preparing this story. And just for good measure, we'll also link to some stories about other thefts from the Fog Museum, both before and after 1973. I think they need to hire some better security. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event, and the Boston Overtime Puzzle, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before we go, we have listener feedback to share. First up, we have a tweet from a user who goes by Boston Auto. After we recommended the American Revolution podcast as our book club pick a few weeks ago, Mr. Auto said, On the suggestion of Hub History, I have started devouring the American Revolution podcast. Which is perfect timing, because we just had a chance to meet AMREV podcast Michael Troy at History Camp. So we're glad to be getting a few more listeners when we can. Speaking of which, we got a chance to meet a lot of you wonderful listeners at History Camp this year. One of them named Bernard tweeted, Half the fun is just running into all the old friends I haven't seen in ages, and new ones that I first met here. Case in point, just met Hub History and Boston 1775 in rapid succession. 
nice to put a face to a Twitter handle. After hearing episode 122 about the riot that destroyed the Ursuline convent in Charlestown, a listener named Maggie wrote in to talk about how present that disaster was as she grew up in Boston's tight-knit Irish Catholic community. Have you ever read Tip O'Neill's Man of the House? This story was so real to us, we thought it was recent history when we were young. Speaker Tip writes of his shock when he finds out the convent burned in 1834. I knew just how he felt. Friend of the show and former candidate for Suffolk County Register of Deeds, John Keith, finally listened to episode 44 about Boston's ancient custom of perambulating the bounds, which means walking the boundaries of the city to mark them. Then he tweeted to Mayor Marty Walsh, I am proposing that I get the job of Boston Perambulator. We also need to give a shout out to Melissa, who lives all the way in Reading, Pennsylvania. I think her five-star review on Apple Podcasts is the one that comes from the furthest afield. She says, I wish I could remember how I found out about this podcast so that I could thank them. I was born and raised and still live in Pennsylvania, but I have spent a lot of time in Boston and it is one of my favorite places to visit. The podcast is great. I love learning more about Boston that you won't find out on most tours. In her email, she also said, You mentioned Reading when discussing canoodling and quoted our local paper. I was listening at work and almost lost it. My coworkers already know that I am odd and probably wouldn't have noticed. I have also had to stop myself from laughing out loud at times. Thanks a bundle, Melissa. Remember, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, send us your address and we'll send you a sticker. We enjoy getting listener feedback, whether you loved the episode or just liked it a lot. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we missed. If you want to leave us some feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We also have a voicemail line at 617-383-9255, where you can call and leave us a voicemail. We'd love to get some audio feedback that we can share in a future episode. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider reviewing us. It's still one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 